0: Alright, so we're going to start today, jumping back in our Bibles again, with the story of the Tower of Babel. You guys know the story of the Tower of Babel uh, from the beginning of Genesis there? So here's what happens. A bunch of guys get together, and they think, you know what, we're pretty great. And they had kind of a misunderstanding about the way the world works, and they thought, boy, if we could get just a little bit higher, we'll be closer to the gods, and we're going to build this giant building you know, uh, and this giant tower, and we're going to get close to the gods and everybody's going to look at us and they're going to say, these dudes are the best. I'm paraphrasing. This is the new John version, right? So they start building and then God says, Oh, don't like this very much. Right. These people trying to be me basically. So what he did was he gave them all uh, through sort of a miracle, right? He um, scattered their languages. So all of a sudden they're all working. Guy says, Hey, would you hand me that brick? And then what the other guy heard was Charlie Brown's teacher. Womp, 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 you know. And he goes, nobody knows what I'm talking about, Charlie Brown's teacher. You guys are all like, somebody has to know about Charlie. Anyway, so they have no idea what they're saying. And they realize, boy, now that everybody speaks all these different languages, there's no way we're going to get this building project done. So like building projects in San Francisco, it got abandoned halfway through and just left there. And everybody's scattered. And um, this is a story of how kind of language broke up. At the very beginning. And it's a very famous story in scripture. And the idea here is this is a result of sin. So the book of Genesis is showing us how sin continues to ruin the world. And one of the effects that sin has had on the world is the scattering of people, right? So people were supposed to be in community together and loving each other like Adam and Eve before the fall. They were supposed to be this perfect union. But instead, what do we see through all world history is division, And people scattering and these different languages and that sort of stuff is a result of sin. And so all these people scatter. And this, uh, the the story of the Bible plays this out, right? They're fighting the the Edomites and the Philistines and the Egyptians and the Babylonians. And there's just constantly these different groups of people not getting along, these different languages. Then we come to the story of Pentecost. And one of the cool things about the story of Pentecost is that Pentecost is presented as a reversal of the story of the Tower of Babel. So the story of the Tower of Babel, because of division and sin, everybody scatters. But what we're going to see with the falling of the Holy Spirit and uh, the speaking in tongues and all this stuff that we're about to read is people now are coming back together. God is fixing the world. He's fixing what was broken at uh, at the Tower of Babel. And we're going to see this theme play out through the whole book of Acts, is how humanity comes back together in this new people of God. The starting point, though, for that whole theme happens here today. And so the plan for today in our text and our sermon—we have a little bit of a shorter text again, just like last Um, week—what we're going to do is we're going to read about the crowd at Pentecost— And what happened at Pentecost last week was we read about the Holy Spirit falling on the disciples and the 120. And then they go out into the streets and they're speaking in tongues and that sort of stuff. Uh, And uh, what happens next, though, is a crowd gathers. Today, all we're going to read about is who that crowd was. Next week, we're going to read Peter's sermon to this crowd. And then in two weeks, we're going to read how the crowd responds to Peter's sermon. Uh, So we're spending four weeks in the story of Pentecost, which last time I taught this, book of Acts, uh, this was all one sermon. We went through, took four hours. So I decided to split it up a little bit. So here we go. Um, We're going to start in verse five, where we left off last week. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So way back when, before the time that we're reading about now, there was a thing called the Jewish dispersion. And what this was, it was kind of, it wasn't like one event. It was a bunch of different events that took the Jewish folks, the Israelites from the land of Israel and spread them out all over the ancient near East. And so for different reasons, there were Jewish people all over the Roman world. Uh, There was the uh, captivity and spreading out of the Jewish people from the Assyrian captivity in 722 BC. They came and destroyed the Northern kingdom. 586, like we read about in the book of Ezekiel, Nebuchadnezzar and all his armies, they came and they took most of the people of uh, Judah in the south, the Israelites of Judah in the south, into exile in Babylon. And when we read about those people coming back in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, only a couple of them came back. Most of the Jewish people stayed in Babylon, right? And they were there for a long time. And then through a bunch of different circumstances with the generals uh, from Alexander the Great split his kingdom up into four, his empire into four Areas And four different generals kind of took over. Uh, those generals, because of a lot of historical things, ended up having Jewish people spread out all over those four kingdoms. So there was a lot of Jewish people in Egypt. There were a lot of Jewish people in Asia Minor, which is what we call Turkey now. Um, there was a huge Jewish population in the city of Rome. Right. So these Jewish people were spread out all over the ancient Roman world. When we open up Pentecost, the story of Pentecost, what we see is that all these Jewish people... We're in the city of Jerusalem. So uh, if, I forget the exact rules, but it was like, if you live within a certain distance, there were a couple of festivals, Pentecost, Passover, maybe one more, where you had to travel to Jerusalem if you were living in the area, right? But if you were further than that, it was just strongly recommended that you travel to Jerusalem for these festivals. And so the city of Jerusalem would explode from, you know, I don't remember what it is exactly, 50,000 people to hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people, two or three times a year. They had these big festivals, just like this APEC garbage that's ruining my neighborhood all week. You know, it was kind of like this, but way worse, right? Dream force, one of these kind of things, you know, everybody's here. And so these Jewish people, uh, these, these were the devout men, right, is what it tells us. Because these were the ones who said, you know what, I'm going to spend the time and the money, and I'm going to travel to Jerusalem for probably what they did was they went for Passover And then they waited the 50 days and they stayed till Pentecost. And then after that, they would go home. So for a lot of these people, it was a once in a lifetime trip. Maybe they would go two or three times in a lifetime, but you'll see where they're coming from. They're coming from all over. And so this crowd is here when the Holy Spirit falls on the group in the upper room. What we see next, verse six, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So the crowd comes together because of this sound. The question is, what does this sound mean? What is that referring to? And we don't actually know. It could be two things. The first is, uh, it could be the wind. Remember, the Holy Spirit came and it sounded like a roaring, rushing wind through that room. And maybe it was loud enough for the people outside to hear. Most likely, though, what's going on is, remember, these disciples filled with the Holy Spirit are worshiping and speaking in languages that they don't know. They're speaking in tongues and they're having, it's probably a big, a huge commotion. This was a very Pentecostal feeling service. You know what I mean? This wasn't like our church services that are very much like this. Hmm. hmm, That's interesting. You know what I mean? This was like, this was loud. People were clapping and cheering and having fun. And they were, (laughs) they were worshiping the Lord in these different tongues. That's what it says. They were uh, bewildered because each one of them was hearing them, that's the disciples, speaking in his own language. So Luke uses a couple of different words in Greek that he's trying to get across what these people in the crowd were feeling. I'm going to give you some of these words. In verse 6 in the ESV, it says, bewildered. In verse 7, they're amazed. In uh, verse 7 and 12, they're astonished, amazed. Verse 12 is perplexed. Basically, these guys have no idea what's going on. Why are they so confused? Because they're hearing somebody speak their language when they're not expecting it to, not expecting that to happen. Now, I, don't, I only speak English, and I'm never surprised when people speak English, right? I'm the American that's surprised when somebody doesn't speak English. I'm like, well, what's wrong with you? You know, I'm one of those Americans. You guys know what I'm talking about? But, you know, I go to France, and I'm like, why don't you speak my language? I'm one of those guys, right? But for the most part... If you speak another language and then you hear somebody speaking that language, you're a little bit surprised. Have you guys seen this YouTuber? I wrote it down and now I'm not even going to try to pronounce this. Xiao, Sha- Xiaomi. me, Okay. So he's just, is that a name? Shao something in Chinese. Anyway, he's this a real regular looking white guy. You know what I mean? Nothing special about this guy. And he he learns languages really fast and he lived in Beijing for a few years. He speaks perfect Mandarin. He speaks pretty good Cantonese, from what I hear. And he has these YouTube videos where he goes to the nail salon in Chinatown in New York. He lives in New York. And he lets them work on his nails while they talk trash about him. You know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, This stupid white guy, all this kind of stuff. And then he answers them back in Chinese. And the lady goes, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. you know. Or he goes to a restaurant and he orders... Uh, in Chinese and there's, he starts to order in English. Hey, which one of these dumplings is good? You, you know, whatever. And then she says something in Chinese and he responds in Chinese and they're always like, they're bewildered. That's a pretty good word, right? They're taken back. He does this with Chinese. He does this with a lot of other languages. He's done this with a few languages I've never even heard of. Um, some uh, smaller languages from Africa, some tribes and some different stuff. He'll go to like, there's one store in New York that sells stuff for these, this people group. He'll learn the language and then he'll go talk to them in the language that most white people have never heard of. Anyway, so this guy is what I think of when I think of this, right? If these waitresses who are all just like taking whoa, super surprised. That's what's going on here. They're super surprised because they're hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own language. And then verse 7. And uh they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are these not are not all these who are speaking Galileans? I love this, it's so cool, it's so funny. Uh and how is it that we hear each one of us in his own na- native language? So again, they're amazed. They're astonished. They have no idea what's going on here. And they ask this question, aren't these guys from Galilee? Now, let me tell you why I love this. Because Galilee was the rednecks of Israel back in the day. Okay, so Jesus was from Galilee. He was from the deep south, even though it was in the north of Israel. Imagine for a second, you were one of us San Francisco, sophisticated San Francisco snobs. You know what I mean? You know, Like all of us. You know, who thinks we're better than everybody because we live in San Francisco? Okay, so imagine you're one of us, right? And you, it's Thanksgiving or something, so you have to go visit your redneck family or something. And you're down somewhere in the south or wherever, and you walk onto Cousin whatever's trailer park. And you're just judgy. You're like, huh, I live in San Francisco, you know, like this trailer park. Then you walk in, it's all dirty and it's run down. And you hear your redneck cousin uh, you know, in the trailer house thing there uh you pass by it you're walking towards it, and you pass by another trailer and there's a bunch of guys sitting out front on on lawn furniture. but when I say this, i don't mean lawn furniture, I mean just furniture on the lawn, you know what I'm talking about It's just like a normal couch that lives outside, okay, and they're all sitting on the normal couch that lives outside around a campfire in a in a in a oil drum, okay, and they're sitting there, and they all have p b r beers And they're talking with that thick Southern accent. And you're just like, oh, these rednecks, right? They're probably talking about what's their favorite truck or their favorite part about Trump or whatever it is. And you walk by and they're having a deep philosophical argument about the postmodern view of truth and how existentialism has helped accelerate our fractured political climate. (laughs) You would go, aren't these guys from Galilee? right? Aren't these are rednecks? This is what they're taught. They're having this deep philosophical discussion They're talking about John Paul Sartre and Soren Kierkegaard and all this stuff. And you're like, what is happening here? It would completely blow your mind because you have this preconceived prejudice against these types of people. That's what happens here. These guys show up and all of a sudden these Galileans, these are devout people. They love God. And so for them to see these rednecks praising God, but in my weird language that nobody else in Jerusalem knows is a super weird thing. Now, let's take a look at the crowd. It's not just one or two languages. This isn't like walking through Chinatown and hearing Mandarin or Cantonese. This is. Look at this list of people, uh, where they're all from. There's Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Cappadocia Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear, them, uh, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So this is the map I want to show you. This is from the ESV Study Bible that I made you guys all buy. This is why you should buy an ESV Study Bible. Um, this is the ESV Study Bible. Hey, you got that... Cl- the, you want to get this laser pointer going? Okay, first off, we have the Parthians. Can you find that from Parthia? Way over there. Yep, Parthia. Uh, this was... So, does anybody know who the Parthians were? Not a single person? Nobody went to middle school? No, I'm just kidding. I didn't learn about this in middle school either. The Parthians were like the other Roman Empire. There was another massive empire that Rome was afraid of. And it... Like you can see, right here... Uh, Parthian Empire, Roman Empire. Do you see how they butt up right against each other kind of in the land of Israel? So this was a massive empire, and there were a lot of Jewish folks scattered all over the Parthian Empire, left over from the different exiles, the Babylonian, the Assyrian exile. Okay, so the next group is the Medes from Media. Um, this was, so like Parth, saying the Parthian Empire is like saying the United States. So there's people from the United States, and there's people from Oregon, and you know, so there's different parts of the Parthian Empire. So the first is, uh, the Medians, um, which was up there in the north. And then the Elamites somewhere. Elam down there. Uh, the Elamites were on the Persian Gulf, also part of the per- uh, Parthian Empire. And then residents of Mesopotamia, which was that big area between the Tigris and the Euphrates. Um, <laughs> oh man, I'm real smart. I'm looking, I'm like, why isn't he showing the laser pointer? Because it's not on my screen, but it's probably behind me. Yeah, there we go. Uh, so the, the areas of Mesopotamia. Um, all in all, scholars estimate that over a million Jewish people lived in the Parthian Empire at this time. That's a huge group of people. Lived in an area that most of us have never heard of because Rome lasted longer than the Parthian Empire. All right, so next is Judea, which is kind of obvious because that's where Jerusalem was. So this is the southern part of the land of Israel. Galilee was up north. Uh, there's people from Cappadocia, which was a Roman province. Do you see it there? Yep. Uh, it was a Roman province. Um, in modern Turkey, what in Bible times they called it Asia Minor. There was a uh, the right above that in Pontus, just north of Cappadocia, uh, which was on the shore of the Black Sea. Then they say Asia, which is just the whole region that we call modern Turkey, kind of a catch-all. Phrygia and Pamphylia, which was the middle of Asia Minor and the southern part. And then he jumps all the way and he says, and then there's people from Egypt. So Alexandria specifically, which was on the coast there, had a massive Jewish population and is probably where Jesus lived when he escaped uh, Herod for the first couple years of his life. Um, And Alexandria was the biggest center of Jewish life outside of the Holy Land, right? So there were a ton of Jewish people in Alexandria. Then it says parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene or Cyrene, that was all just kind of a catch-all for the whole north coast of Africa. So there were so many Jewish folks in Alexandria that a lot of them spilled out, and they moved west, and they ended up in northern Africa. Then there's people from Rome, which for some reason doesn't get a big, fat, bolded letter, but it's in the map there. Um, Aside from Alexandria, Rome was the third biggest area in the world that had uh, Jewish folks. And then there's people from the island of Crete. You see that right in the middle there, Crete, uh, which we'll read about later in the book of Acts. Um, Then there's the Arabians, which is to the east of Judea. Do you guys remember um, there was a kingdom there called the Nabataean kingdom? Do you remember in Indiana Jones when he goes to Petra, right, the the big rock city? That's where this was from. It was a major trading center. And then he says this. So that's all the nations. He says, Now, from this area, there's both Jews and proselytes. What he means by that is Jewish folks were the fully circumcised, I'm a full part of this religion. Proselytes were converts, so they were born Jewish. Proselytes were converts to Judaism who had been also circumcised uh, as adults. Boy, that's a hard pitch for your Pabst Blue Ribbon stuff. Hey, do you want to convert to my religion? Sure, what do I have to do? You know. But there were guys that did it, right? People that converted to Judaism as adults. They would go, they would get circumcised, they'd become full members of the uh, of the people of God. Um, but then Luke will also talk later about what he calls God-fearers. These were people who really liked the religion but didn't want to full-on get circumcised because it's a whole thing. And so those were called God-fearers. Luke is telling us here, that was not who was in Jerusalem at this time. This was just the two groups of fully Jewish people. Now the question is, why the long list? Why doesn't Luke just say... Yeah, there were a lot of people there from all over. Why does he get so specific? About 3,000, I'll tell you why. about 3,000 of these people are about to come to faith in a few verses. And Luke wants us to see how it all started with a diverse group of Jewish people from all over the world. And they spoke a ton of different languages. So this didn't happen in Hebrew. This first group of people who the Spirit fell on and came to faith was this. They were all Jewish, but they were a diverse group of Jewish people, if that can make sense. Then we're going to read later in the book of Acts how the mission of God goes past Jewish people into the Gentile world. But it started with Jewish people, but Luke specifically wants us to know it wasn't just a bunch of Jewish guys from Jerusalem. This was, at the very beginning, a worldwide movement. And um these guys are hearing the gospel in their own languages. There's so many languages spoken in these groups. I just Googled, like, I not Googled, I looked at my Bible software, like, what were all these different languages? And Parthian is a language. The Nabataeans spoke their own version of Aramaic. The Medes had their own language called Median. You know, I looked up a bunch. There's a bunch of them. Like, most of these regions, there was less universal language back in the day than there is now, if that makes sense. There was way more regional languages. Like, in America, we all speak pretty much English, but... If this was the ancient world, even just going to L.A. or San Diego, they might speak a different language or a different subset of English because there was less crossover. There were less people moving around to kind of flatten out the languages. And so that's how it started. And then let's keep going here, verse 12. They were all amazed and perplexed. They were saying to one another, what does this mean? Oh, wait, I missed a verse here. Let me read it to you, though. But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. So there's two responses to what's going on here. The first response is they're, comple- they're they're perplexed and they're wondering what's going on. What what does this mean? Um, the second response is these guys are drinking. <laughs> right now, here's the problem with that is I've seen I've seen people get drunk. I've never seen anybody get drunk and then start speaking another language they didn't know. Right when you get drunk, you get stupider, not smarter. Does that make sense? So for them to go, man, all of these people got really smart because they're drinking doesn't make any sense. Next week, Peter is going to go, yeah, we're filled with something, but it's not booze. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's going to be his answer to this. But anyway, this is where I want to stop. Remember last week, what I said about the gifts of the Holy Spirit was this, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are more about ministry than they are about personal fulfillment, Right? The gifts are not, the gift that you've been given is not for you. It's for you to use for the benefit of other people. This is where we see that first and foremost, is these people are speaking in tongues. That's great. But this speaking in tongues that we see in Acts 2 is not some sort of personal prayer. It's a proclamation of the gospel for this very diverse group of people. And Luke wants to make this point specifically that a lot of people from all over the world we're here all over the ancient Near East, right? We're here, happened to be in town while this happened. And so I want to talk today for the rest of our time, the next, I don't know, half hour, 20 minutes, whatever we have left here. Um, Oh, my timer didn't start, so I still have an hour. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I want to talk for a little bit here, though. I want to stop here and talk about what the book of Acts will say about missions. And I want to talk about the church and world missions specifically, okay? So first off, I want to ask this question. What do we mean? Have you heard churches talk about this? Use that phrase, world missions? Uh, You know, Missionary work in the last couple of years has got a really bad rap because there was a guy, I didn't write his name down, and I didn't write down the island that he went to. But you know that island off the coast of, uh, I think it's Nepal, maybe, where there's that tribe of people that has still never really been contacted, and they're out there living with spears and canoes and eating coconuts and that sort of stuff. And the couple of times that Modern people have tried to go reach this tribe. The tribe has killed them, and so there was this guy, and I think he was from uh, one of those like uh, hyper charismatic kind of groups. Didn't do all the stuff he was supposed to do. I guess I don't know the whole story, but anyway, he went out there and he's like, "I'm gonna tell these guys about Jesus," and um, and then they killed him. Do you remember this? And it was all over the news a couple years ago, and the story nowhere was it was it presented like, oh, this guy's a hero. He went out there and he gave his life for the Lord. And maybe he wasn't perfect in the way that he did it or whatever, but nowhere is it presented like that. It was presented like, oh, this arrogant Western guy went out and tried to give diseases to these tribal people and all this sort of stuff. You know, um, I don't know the whole story, but for the most part, that's what people think of now when they think of missions. They think of this this guy trying to reach this tribal people. But the word missions is actually really important, and the idea of missionary work is really important. And it starts with the Great Commission, right? We have two versions of this. We have the Matthew 28 version. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and what? make disciples of who? All nations. That's missionary work. And then baptizing them and teaching them. We'll talk about that stuff later. But go to the nations, right? It doesn't say sit there and let the nations come to you. It says go to them. The second thing is you'll receive power. This is from the same conversation. This is Luke's version of it. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses where? So this is the book of Acts, right? Judea, I'm sorry, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. So that's, Jeru- that's San Francisco, Oakland, and San Leandro, and then to the ends of the earth, even to Turlock. You know, like we're going to go, that's the idea. It's, it just keeps going out and out. But really, the ends of the earth means to everywhere. And in the ancient world, this was a terrifying thought. They didn't have airplanes. You couldn't go to the ends of the world in the ancient world. Or you couldn't go to the ends of the earth. It wasn't a thing, but now we can. So this makes a lot more sense. I want to give you this definition From this guy, Andrew Ong, from the Gospel Coalition. I read like 50 definitions of what missionary work is and world missions, and this was the one I liked the best. He said, World mission, this is what it is it's the ongoing event and activity of Christ's spirit through his body. Uh, The church, as its members, make whole and culturally embodied disciples of Jesus among the nations, is a long definition, by bearing witness to the good news of his redemptive kingdom and seeking obedience in the form of repentant faith in his name, according to our heavenly father's good pleasure and plan to save the world and consummate on his new creation. All right, that's going to be on the test. You guys all got that? No, not really. But let's break this down for a sec. Here's the first thing he says. Uh, world mission is the ongoing event and activity of Christ's spirit through his body, the church. Okay. So this is a work. Missionary work is a work of the Holy spirit, but he uses us to do it. You will receive power when the Holy spirit has come upon you. So, the power comes from the Spirit, but you're the ones that are going to go to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So this is a call for us specifically as the people of God. Next, it says, as members, what do we do, though? So what is the work? We make whole and culturally embodied disciples of Jesus. I love that phrase because it doesn't say just making disciples. That phrase, whole and culturally embodied. We This uh, missionary work is not colonialism right? English, British colonialism got mixed up with a lot of missionary work over the last couple of hundred years. And there were some very cool missionaries that happened during that time. There was also a lot of really terrible ones. And they would show up in a little tribe in the Philippines or wherever, you know, somewhere in uh, Africa or whatever, India. And they would show up and they would basically say, we want you to become believers, but you have to become British first. You start acting like a British guy. And that's not what this is. The gospel speaks into people's cultures, and it challenges certain areas of their culture, and it celebrates other areas. And you don't have to become right? Prince Charles' subject if you want to become a believer. And that's why that's so important. The next phrase is, uh, among the nations. This is where it happens. It happens everywhere. And then by bearing witness to the good news of his redemptive kingdom and seeking obedience in the form of repentance a repentant faith in His name. This is, and we'll talk about this in a minute, actually teaching the gospel to folks, and then according to the Heavenly Father's good pleasure and plan to save the world, right? Because we do it because this is what God told us to do, right? He promised us that as we go, He will work through us. And so what I want to do is I want to give you, in the next couple of minutes, we'll try to go through these somewhat quickly, but... Um, This is one of those things. I think the first two points here are longer than the other one. So if you start timing this out, you're like, we're never going to get out of here. But I promise we'll get out of here. Uh, I'm going to give you seven. Let me scroll. Why is he scrolling for so long? Uh, Yeah, seven ideas about the church and missions that we see from the book of Acts specifically and from other things. All right, here we go. This is the first idea. These are all in your bulletins too. Okay, But the church must worship so intensely that we are driven to missions. This is the starting point. Uh, I'll read to you from Psalm uh, Psalm 67. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad. Who should be glad? The nations. And sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Right? This is where it starts. This is where missionary work starts. John Piper put this so perfectly. Uh, he had a book about missionary work. He says this. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Some churches think it is, that missionary work is the ultimate thing that we do. And it sort of is, but it's also not. He says worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, so when we're all in the new heavens and the new earth, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions work will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. Think about that. But worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. That's so good, right? When I was a kid, like what he's saying is, there are people out there that aren't worshiping the Lord, and we love to worship the lord and we know the the wonderful union with christ we know what it means to be saved we know the joy of living every day for his glory and not our own and because we know there's people out there who don't have this we say we want them to have it so the goal of missions is not to make me feel good or to work out of guilt right but it's a it's a our my worship is so intense and like burning white hot, it overflows, and that's how missions work happens. Uh, when I was a kid, we used to have a lot of missionaries. We had a board at church. You know, you guys ever gone to one of these churches? You walk in, and there's the uh, the board with the map on it, and there's are little pins in it. These are the missionaries we 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 uh, uh, support. And sometimes these missionaries would come, and uh, they would do a presentation. And I remember this one family, the Petros family, and I don't even remember where they were. I th- They were in one of the Southeast Asian countries, but I remember they lived in the jungle. Like literally, they lived in a tree house in the jungle like Swiss Family Robinson. And, you know, I've told you stories about when I was a kid. So what did we do? We bullied the kids. they're weird. They don't even know about the TV show I like, right? We were horrible to these poor kids. And they would come back once a year and they would do the tour and fundraise and stuff. And they would tell these really cool stories and then they would leave. And our church leadership would try to get money for them by guilting us. By saying, you see, those are the real Christians. You're not even the real Christians. So at least you can do. The least you can do is fund the real ones. You should feel bad that you didn't move to the jungles in, I think it was the Philippines, but I could be wrong. Somewhere out there in the jungles. And so because you're here and you have a TV and you're comfortable and you have a VCR. It was a long time ago. That was a big deal. And you have a VCR. You should sell something, and you should give it to this family. And then our church would. And our church had a lot of money, and we were pretty good at funding missionaries. And then nobody realized that's the worst thing that you can do to try to get people to support missionaries. Missions work should go like this. You know how much you love Jesus? Like You know that feeling? Oh, you don't love Jesus that much? Well, let's work on that. And then when you get to the point where you love Jesus so much and that your whole life is about His glory and not your own, That worship overflows out of you. And then the Petros show up and you go, yeah, those guys are doing it. I'm going to give them all my money throw piles of money at them. Because you love the Lord so much and you know the work that they're doing. And you know what else? I was like a kid with the Petros. I was such a punk too. So they would come. And the first time they came, I remember him kind of saying, yeah, we're just learning the language. I was like, what are we paying you for? That was my thought, right? Because I thought I knew everything. I was like 10. What are we even paying you for? Then he came back when I was 11. And he was like, we had one guy convert. I was like, one guy? You've been out there five years, man. Like, let's do the math. Then he came back the next year. Okay, we have 20 guys. We planted a church. And then he came back the next year, and it was a little bigger. And by the end of it, he was running a pastor's college. And <laughs> This guy was amazing, right? But anyway, the point is we should look at that and go, I love Christ so much, and I love what they're doing so much that I want uh, I want to jump on board. And so what do we do? We spend as much time as we can trying to get into our mindset that we're living for the glory of God. And we try to be so worshipful and so filled with the Spirit that we go, I can't live without helping missionaries. I can't do it. Not, I feel guilty and I should probably do it. It's like, I have to do this because I love the Lord so much. And I know that what's happening over there is important. And then what will happen is as church grows, and this is our attitude, a couple of you guys will go, I have to move to Kazakhstan <laughs> or wherever. You know, I have to go. I can't stay here anymore because this fire has been lit underneath me. So that's the first thing. Worship starts with missions. The second thing is this. The church must pray for missions. In Western churches, we have been highly influenced by the tactics of the business world. And our first instinct when thinking about any new project or really anything is... Let's plan it on a human level, right? Josue wants to plan a church. Great. What's your website? What's your vision statement? What's your financials? You know, all that stuff. And I mean, some of that is kind of important. You got to have a website. You got to have a whatever. But on a that's a human level. Like we just get to, let's plan this thing out. And what we need to do is let's drop on our knees and let's pray. Let's come to the Lord and say, we know that the task of missionary work is not a human task. It's not something that we can... We can do. Right. He said, You will do this when what? The power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. If you try to go do missionary work in the power of Josue and Wendy, or you try to do missionary work in the power of John or Peter or whoever, it's not gonna happen. Nothing it's not gonna work. Because we're supposed to be working in the power of the Spirit. Um in John, and so we should pray. If that's true, then prayer is the most important thing. John fifteen sixteen says this. Um you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask, in, uh, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Okay, so here's the chain of this verse where Jesus is talking to the disciples. He says, look, first off, I'm the sovereign Lord of everything. Here's the second thing. I chose you guys to bear fruit. And then the third thing is the verse that's always taken out of context. Anything you ask for, I'm going to give it to you. But the context of this is when you're out there trying to bear fruit and doing missionary work and doing gospel outreach, you're going to ask God, hey, reach these people. And that's when he says he might give it. He's going to give it to you, right? So the idea is uh, prayer is the most important thing that we can do as we think about world missions. The third idea, the church must suffer. Is <laughs> he? She left something in here. Now she's going to throw a fit. Watch. Anyway, the church, the third idea, where was I? Oh, yeah. The church must suffer and sacrifice for missions work. In Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. You remember that phrase, witness? We talked about this. Does anybody remember what that word means? What's the Greek word? It's martyr. You will be my martyrs. And the word meant witness. Martyr, the word just meant like somebody who's willing to share the faith. But it came to mean somebody who's willing to die in order to share the faith. That's the strength of that word. Um, this is, in the book of Acts and in the whole New Testament, this is this idea of suffering and sacrificing for missions is exactly what we see the early church do. And it's really interesting how it's the one thing that Western churches try so hard not to do. We try to make sure we don't sacrifice anything more than we can bear. And we try to make sure that in no way do we suffer. But that's not the, that's not the way the early church worked. Look at this. Um, you know, the story when Paul, we'll get to this later on, but when Paul becomes a believer and there's a guy there and his name is Ananias and Paul, you know, the story gets knocked off his horse or whatever. And Jesus is like, Hey man, why are you messing with my, why are you messing with me? And you belong to me now, basically. And Paul was like, really? And he's like, what punk? And then he goes, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'll work for you now then, but Paul was going to, um, uh, Damascus, right? Yeah. Yeah. Paul was going to Damascus to kill all the Christians and everybody knew he was coming. But then the Lord shows up to this one Christian Ananias and he goes, Hey man, I need you to go take care of this guy, Paul. And at first Ananias goes, uh, no, that's the guy who's coming to kill me. Jesus, don't you know anything? And this is what he tells him. This is what the Lord says to Ananias go for. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and Kings and the children of Israel. So he's my chosen instrument. And then he says this, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He's going to be like the greatest missionary of all time. And because of that, he's going to suffer for my name. And this is exactly what happened to Paul. Look at this in Second Corinthians. He's, he's bragging about how much he suffered. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the forty lashes less one. Five times he received 39 lashes from Jewish uh, in Jewish synagogues. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and we'll talk about that. I think he might have actually died when he was stoned. Like, stone, stone, not stone, stone, you know? Uh, three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys and in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many, a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? Am I not, uh, and am I, uh... And I am not indignant. So basically, he's bragging. You want to know who's the greatest missionary? Look at who suffered the most. And why was he so proud of his suffering? Because Jesus promised, right? He said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Right? So Paul looked at that and he goes, hmm, the more faithful I am, the more I'm going to suffer. And that's okay. And this is played out in history. There's so many examples. You guys know, I've talked a lot about the story from Through Gates of Splendor, Jim Elliott and those guys uh, who were out in a tribe in South America and they, um, the tribe speared them to death. And the crazy part about that story is that the guys who got speared to death, I didn't find this out until a long time after I'd read this book a couple of different times, they had guns, right? And so they were. their choice was, do I kill these tribal people that we're trying to share the gospel with who are literally killing me? And save my own life, or do I let them kill me? And they chose. I'm going to die. I'd rather die because they don't know Jesus, and I do. If I die right now, I'm going to go be with the Lord. They're not. And all the guys who killed these missionaries ended up becoming believers because of the wives shared the faith. Elizabeth Elliot and all those women went and shared the faith, and this whole community of Christ popped up in the jungles uh, in I broke Peru was it? No, Ecuador. I don't remember. Um, but those guys suffered, literally gave their lives. There's numerous other stories of missionaries suffering in China, North Korea, India, Sudan, various like Islamic countries all over the Middle East, Kazakhstan, the other Eastern Bloc nations. Right? There's so many of these stories. So that's the first way the church suffers. But the second way, most of us are not going to end up in Kazakhstan. Most of us are not going to end up in Dubai or in Saudi Arabia. The church back home should also suffer and sacrifice. And what I mean by that is you're probably not going to suffer, but you should sacrifice. Churches, supporting missions should cost us enough that it kind of hurts a little bit. right? So most of us will give to missionary work. This is what we'll do. We'll go, okay, God, all right, I promise this pastor keeps hassling me about giving 10% of what I make and tithing and blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to give the church seven, and I'm going to give this missionary 3%, and that's my 10%. And here's the thing. If that's the way you think, don't give your money to either of us. <laughs> right? What we want is the first attitude that we talked about. I want you to be so worshipful that you care way more about the Lord than you do about your money. And then I want you to give your money to the church and support what we're doing here. And then I want you, out of an overflow of worship, give to missionaries overseas. And then I want you to look at your books and go, boy, I gave Jesus way too much money. I guess I got to cancel my Netflix and whatever. You know, I want it to sting a little. That's how we do it. That's how, uh, you know... That's the kind of support that we give missionaries. Paul did this, right, in the New Testament. He went around, took a collection for the church in Jerusalem, and it hurt. You know, this is like what we've been doing for a very long time. And so with all of this, suffering and spreading the gospel to the nations, it's way too hard for us. And that's why here's our fourth idea. The church has to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, the sovereignty of God for missionary work. Here's what I mean by that. If we're gonna talk about election and predestination and some of that stuff in a little bit in the book of Acts. But here's the dilemma. If if election is true, that God saves people because he saves them, right? He elected people before eternity passed, then why even bother with missionary work? Right? Why don't we just sit at home? God elected who he's gonna elect, he's gonna save who he's gonna save. Doesn't election negate the need for missions? And the answer, my favorite answer from this is J.I. Packer wrote a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And what he says is this, why are so many, like, I don't like the word Calvinist, but so many Calvinists missionaries over the history of the world, there's been a ton of Calvinist missionaries. Not that there hasn't been other ones too, but there's been so many Calvinist missionaries. And the answer is this, election and predestination guarantees success. God says, you don't have to save people. I'm going to save them. All you have to do is tell them about me. And when you tell them about me, I'm going to touch their hearts. And so go out. And if you succeed, it's because I've touched hearts. And if you don't, it's because I haven't. And it's not up to you to fix people. It's up to you to just present the message and let me do the rest of the work. It takes the pressure off. And so people who are these reformed Calvinist kind of guys, they went out there with like this passion for the Lord because of their deep sense of the sovereignty of God. And they said, God told me if I pray for people and I tell them about Jesus, he's going to save a couple of them. So I'm going to do that, right? Uh, One example of how God can save people, even through terrible missionaries, is Jonah, right? Like Josue taught us. You remember Jonah's sermon? It was the worst sermon in history. It was repent, or no, what is it? 40 days, you're all dead. That was it. No repentance, no And He turned and he walked out and he sat there and he's like, I can't wait till these people are dead. And then they all repented, right? Because God worked on their hearts. It's, it's God that does the missionary work. And when we support missionaries, we want to support missionaries who have that understanding. right? That's like, I don't have to fix people. I need to get out there and let God do it. All right, The fifth idea, the church must actually preach the gospel for missions. Now, I say this because there's kind of a debate, not really a debate, but there's a lot of really cool Christian justice organizations. One of my favorites is a group called IJM, International Justice Mission, and they're amazing. And what they do is they're a bunch of lawyers, so maybe they're not that amazing, but anyway, no, they are. They're a bunch of lawyers, and they go all over the world, and they hire lawyers and uh, people from the local areas, and they catch predators, basically, and shut down sex slavery rings all over the world. And they're amazing, and they're totally worth giving your money to. But what I'm also saying is they're also not exactly missionaries. Because they're doing the work of justice, which is important. And it's what Christians should be all about. But they're not out there exactly teaching the gospel and planting churches. So I'm, I'm saying these are two different things, and they're both great, but they're not the same thing. Okay? And we should be aware of that. Uh, six, the church must try to understand the world for missions. Now, there's a guy named Juan Sanchez. He says this, contextualization, that's what we're talking about. Uh, is the word we use for the process of making the gospel and the church uh, as much at home as possible in any given cultural context. Oh, uh, wait, let me, I should have that quote here. We want the gospel to fit in, right? This is what I was talking about earlier. We don't want to show up with some tribe in Ecuador or whatever, or in the Amazon or whatever, and go, great, you guys want to be believers, now you have to be King Charles' subjects. That's not what we want to do. Or great, now you have to be like an American church in San Francisco. Right? The gospel is in the church of Jesus is really interesting how there's no center. The United States is not the center of the church. There are more Christians in India than there are in America. There's more, I don't know, more, but it's getting close, I think, Christians in China. There's definitely more Christians in Africa, although how much prosperity gospel, that's a whole thing. But like there are more Christians outside, you know. And so what the gospel does is it moves into cultures. And it adapts itself into those cultures. You don't have to leave your culture to become a Christian. And so real great missionaries move into cultures and spend time trying to understand the culture before they just drop gospel bombs. I have a friend whose name I can't say and whose mission field I can't say because sometimes they listen to sermons and we don't want them to know she's a missionary. But she moved to this place and there was this people group. I can say it's in France. There's a people group from not France who they have a community in France and she moved into that community and she spent years just learning how the community works. And then she started getting invited to dinners after a couple of years and it was slow. And, um, and then she moved back here and she keeps those relationships up, but she goes back and forth to France and she spent most of her time doing this. These people don't understand the gospel. She was preaching the gospel. She was doing this. But she spent so much time just trying to figure out these people. And then last year, I bumped into her at Handel's Messiah. You know, we go every year to the symphony. And it's great. You should all go to this, by the way, because it's funny. There's only like 11 Christians in San Francisco, and we all go to Handel's Messiah every year, and we all bump into each other and see each other. But anyway, we were there. She was walking in the hallways. And I was like, you know, just for that normal, you kind of know somebody conversation. We've been friends for a long time, but we don't see each other constantly anymore. And I was just like, hey, how's it going to her? She grabbed me. I got one. (laughs) And I was like, what do you mean? And she had her first baptism and convert with this people group. And she was beaming. And then so was I, because I've been praying for her and supporting her for years. But so much of what she did was like, we have to go in and understand how these people work so that we can present the gospel in a way that makes sense to them. All right, here's the last idea. And then we'll do a little quick application and then we're done. The church must understand the times we live in for missions. Now, here's what I mean by this. A couple of things. The, the, the idea of missions in our day and age is different from the idea of missions work in the first century. In the first century, this is what missions work looked like. One church in Antioch got together and they were like, hey, there's some people who don't know Jesus. We're going to send Paul and Barnabas. Here's a donkey and some bags and you're going to walk that way and tell those guys about Jesus. That was missionary work. And then they got there and they killed, they tried to kill him and they stoned them and they beat them and they whipped him and all that stuff, right? Missionary work in our day and age is a little different. It happens in three realms. The first realm is missionary work happens kind of like that first century church. We're gonna send people far away. We're gonna send my friend to France to reach that immigrant people group. Uh we're gonna send people all over the world. Here's from a group called the Joshua Project. They said there are 17,291. Uh, so, about 17,000 total different people groups in the world. 7,253 of those groups are unreached still and have no active missionaries. I want you to think about that. There are 7,253 people groups in the world, groups with their own language and culture. I don't know how exactly how they define people group, but you get the idea. Who don't have an active missionary and have not heard the gospel. That's crazy. Uh, of the world population, they say about eight billion people in the world, unreached is about three point four billion people have are not believe, you know are not have not been at least presented the gospel that 's not how many are believers, but have not that 's forty two percent of the world 's population. so the first realm is we 've got to send people to these unreached people groups. The second realm of missions is it happens here in San Francisco because of globalization. you know what globalization is. Right, like um, I remember, old lady one time uh, saying, the most very old lady saying the most amazing thing she ever saw in her lifetime was airplanes. It shrunk the world. I remember that she said, you need, you know, this lady I know. You you need to, back in the day, you wanted to go to Africa or something, do a trip of Europe. You had to take three months off of work. Now you can be there tomorrow. And so what globalization has done is, and then the internet has really sparked globalization as well. It's shrunk the world, and the world lives in cities. The whole world lives in San Francisco. right? I mean, not really, but there's a lot of folks here. I always kind of tell that joke about one time I was on the, um, I was on the bus and next to me on one side was rollerblades guy with his Daisy Duke shorts and no shirt. You know, that guy seen him walking around dancing with his headphones on and his rollerblades, his butt hanging out of his little shorts, you know? And then on the other side of me was a lady in a full burqa and I remember sitting between these two folks on the bus going, where else in the world do I see these two sitting next to each other? San Francisco is a global city. I, I looked up the stats. Look at this. Okay. Foreign-born stats for San Francisco. Just for uh, in San Francisco, 36% of our population was born over, out of the country, not overseas, out of the United States. 36%. One in three people you see walking around San Francisco wasn't born here. Wait, can I do a poll? Raise your hand if you were not born in the United States, in our church. (laughs) Wait, everybody, wait, raise your hand high and then look around. Look at this. That's more than half of the people, right? This is San Francisco. People come here from all over the world. In North Beach and Telegraph Hill, it's 34%. Chinatown is... 71%. (laughs) 71%. <laughs> no no surprise there. Uh, Knob Hill is 31%. Russian Hill, bums, only 24%. Right, But still, basically every neighborhood in our area is at least 25 to 35%. And then Chinatown's the outlier, right? Because it's Chinatown. Uh, the last 50 years in this technological boom has made it so that you don't have to move to Kazakhstan if you want to reach Kazakhstani people. Kazakhs? Is that what they're called? With the gospel. I'm sure there's some here. Right? You want to find somebody from Burma or whatever? There are people here. And so what we should do as a church... And we'll talk about that in a minute. I'm not going to say... We'll, we'll, that, we'll close with that. All right. The third realm, though. So it happens out there. It happens here. And then the third realm is... And there's only two of us in here who have already figured this out. But missions happens online. Technology has made it so that you can sit face-to-face with somebody in wherever. And why I say there's two of us in here who have figured this out is because of these two jabronis. You know? And they've got their online... They're, they're doing the model of what modern missions work looks like. How many countries do you guys reach? I don't know, 20 or 30? Probably something like that. A couple hundred thousand people listen to these guys present the gospel every week. And tons of people coming to faith through this. Josue and Wendy are planting a church here, and at the same time, they're world missionaries. It's super cool, right? And so we should be supporting people like them as much as we can. They, like my friend not friend, I barely knew the guy, but the guy from my childhood who moved out into the jungle, started a Bible college, they probably total presented the gospel to a couple of thousand people over the life of that whole movement. Maybe 20,000, I don't know, just guessing. Right? But because of technology, these numbers have now boomed exponentially. And we need to go, hey, you know what? Maybe it's not 35 AD. We can adapt our methods and think about how do we do missions in ways besides the way they did it in 1750 or whatever. All right, so let's apply this then. Here's three points of application, real quick. The first is, guys, pray for missions. Your alarm goes off at 4 o'clock. Uh, you, I want you to pray for our church at 4 o'clock, right? But also, maybe set another alarm, or when you have time at night when you're praying, or when you pray in the morning when you get up, or whatever it is. Work some missionary stuff into your prayer. Pray especially for Josue and Wendy's open open heart. What's it called? Uh, open heart? What's that in Spanish? Yeah, that's what I said. Uh, (laughs) So pray for them. Every Wednesday night while we're doing group with like 15 or 20 of us or whatever, they're talking to like 300,000 people about the gospel. Cool? We should be praying for them. It's really cool what's going on. Second is pray for Petra and other stuff too. But also, maybe... I haven't decided if we're going to do this yet or not. I just kind of think about this now, but maybe we'll pick an unreached people group and we'll just start praying for them as a church, something like that. I want you to pray for a specific people group at some point. Here's the second thing I want you to do. Read missionary biographies and stories. There's a lot of cool missionaries over history. I'm going to give you a couple. Um, You can just Google too, cool missionary biographies. I've read a handful of these. Do you know Amy Carmichael? You know who she was? She went to India in the mid-1800s. Uh, um, another one, Adarim Judson went to Burma. Him and his wife went to Burma. He was tortured. He was imprisoned. Um, that was in the 1700s to 1800s, kind of turn of the century there. Hudson Taylor. Do you guys know Hudson Taylor? I read a biography of him. He's one of the coolest ones. Um, he went. He was this uh, British dude, went to China. And while there was a bunch of British stuff on the Chinese coast, but nothing inland. And so he went inland And he faced a lot of persecution and stuff. But the brilliance of Hudson Taylor was he was like, boy, if I look like this, you know, real pasty looking white guy, they're not going to let me in. So what he did was uh, he grew his hair out and did the whole braid. And he was like the only white guy from England dressing like a Chinese person. So he could break down walls and knock down barriers. And he started the, uh, what was it called? The Inland China Mission or something like that. And he had a whole group of, it's a really cool story. I read his biography there's a couple of them out there. There's people like him. David Livingston in Africa. He was an explorer and some other stuff. He went around Africa naming everything after Queen Victoria, I think. But, um, he was actually a really cool missionary. And he was one of those guys that was willing to basically do anything for the Lord. He took the gospel very far inland in Africa. Jim Elliott and those guys. Oh, yeah. It says here Ecuador in the 50s. Uh, there's another guy, William Carey in the 1700s, 1800s, uh, went to India. You can find a lot of these guys, right? So this is the third, that's the second thing. Uh, the third thing is support foreign church planters and missionaries. Put your money where your mouth is. And I don't mean that out of guilt. Right? Again, like I said earlier, if you're just like, oh, John's guilting me about missions. Right? Um, we don't want your money and neither do they. But here's the thing. Worship the Lord so intensely that the money flows out of you. And then here's the end. Um, embrace foreigners here in San Francisco. Think about this for a second. If everybody you know is from wherever you're from or looks like you, you're doing it wrong. Let's open up our spheres of influence. All right. Uh, Oh, yeah, this is the fifth one. Continue to give these turkeys money. support. We want to, okay, they're planting in February. And when they plant in February, we don't want to go, oh, okay, they're gone now. See ya. (laughs) Send me a postcard. (laughs) right? We want to continue to make sure that what Josue and Wendy and their team has going on is being supported by us. All right, I went too long. Sorry, I'm going to end with this quote. Turns out those 58 points took longer than I thought. Okay, here we go. This is a quote from a guy named John Stott. He said, "His authority on earth allows us to dare to go to the nations. His authority in heaven gives us our only hope of success, and his presence with us leaves us no other choice." That's such a great quote, All right? I want you to write that down. It's in your books, I think. Think about that. Uh, let's close in prayer.